Well, I'm obviously not Pastor Jeff. Um, for the next month, he's going to be out visiting some of our partner churches, uh, taking some extra time by not preparing a sermon to prepare for other upcoming series and Hopefully he's taking some time off to rest, but we'll have to see about that. But for the rest of us, we're going to be working through the book of Ruth for the, for the month of August um, in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a short book. It's only four chapters, 85 verses. But it's a book that, that seems to be universally loved, not just in churches. Um, but it, it's studied in Ivy League literature departments across the country. It's, it's beautiful. Its storytelling abilities are incredible. I, I don't know who first said this. I can't find the source. But it seems it's almost always given a subtitle, Ruth, the greatest love story ever told. And it really is this delightful little book. There's, there's no violence in it. There's no villains in it. Uh, instead of having, you know, your good guys and your bad guys, you really have your good guys and your better guys. The characters are divided up of who does what's good and right and sensible and who goes above and beyond in loving kindness. I mean, just the, the more you read it, the, the storytelling, the foreshadowing, the use of language, the way the narrative plays out, it, it's, it's wonderful. The beauty just consistently shines through the words of the book of Ruth. And while all of these things are delightfully true about it, um, we don't want to study Ruth the same way they would at Yale. I want us to love the book of Ruth because of its theology, because of what it teaches us about God. The book of Ruth helps us to develop a doctrine of one of God's attributes that's often lacking in evangelicalism. At least I'll say in kind of conservative, biblically precise churches like ours. Uh, we, we don't have a good doctrine of the kindness of God, right? We're not sure what to do with that, right? We believe in the holiness of God, that God is just and right in everything he does, that in our state of sin, he is inapproachable because of his holiness. And we believe in the love of God, right? A love that sent his son to the cross to die for us and for our sins. A love that's at the heart of his character and at the heart of the gospel, and he accepts all who come to him in love because of Christ. But we're not exactly sure how the kindness of God plays out, right? That is, we don't know how his love actually comes to pass in our world for, for everyday people, how God acts kindly, or maybe even if God acts kindly, right? Because when we think of love, maybe our tendency is to think of the, you know, the tough love of God, or, you know, that there's just truth in love, because because of Christ, God has kind of this obligatory love for us. Of course he's going to accept us. Christ died. But obligation doesn't necessarily equal a tender, caring, compassionate, kind love. And the book of Ruth then comes and it corrects our thinking about God's kindness. Because this book is all about how God acts kindly in the world through his hidden hand of providence. It shows us how he blesses widows and foreigners and men of righteous renown, how he fills up the empty and he brings home the prodigal. And in the book of Ruth, we see the extraordinary kindness of God played out just with, with ordinary people. 
You don't have any prophets. You don't have any priests. You don't have any kings, at least as main characters. Um, it's just about a simple family doing their best to survive and experiencing the loving kindness of God in all sorts of unexpected ways. And so the story of Ruth plays out in four, four acts, four chapters, right? Today we're just looking at chapter one. I'm calling it returning. Um, and from, from chapter one, I, I want to show you this truth, that in his loving kindness, God brings people out of the far country into his place of blessing. Right? And remember, this is just act one of a four-act drama, which means after the first sermon, we're left with tension. Right? The story's not over. But I'd encourage you, if it's been a while since you've read Ruth, if you've never read the book of Ruth, read it this week. Read it repeatedly. Read it often. Get it down deep into your soul so that you know where we're going and so that you can see where we are. So, so here's my plan for this morning. Like I said, I want to show you that in his loving kindness— God brings people out of the far country into his place of blessing. Here's our outline. In verses 1 through 7, we'll see God brings the prodigal home. In verses 8 through 18, we'll see God brings outsiders in. And then in verses 19 through 22, we'll talk about God's loving kindness and his bitter providence. All right, so let's follow along. This is Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The story of Ruth starts with a lot of names and a lot of information, and it's all crucially important to understand the story. So if you notice just the very first words of verse 1, it takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Um, time of the judges was this dark, dark time for Israel. I think a lot of us probably know the various unconnected, random, awesome stories in Judges. You know, uh, Deborah and her tent-peg-wielding tent associate, J.L. Um, everyone loves Samson. You probably shouldn't love Samson, but everybody loves Samson. Um, you know, it's youth pastor, you gotta love Ehud, right? The left-handed assassin who took his sword, he plunged it into the big old belly of massive King Eglon. Um, and if, you know, his fat swallowing up the sword isn't enough to make church boys giddy, then the king soils himself as he dies, and Ehud, our hero, escapes. Um, but the, the reason that you have this list of judge after judge after judge is that God's people couldn't find a way to obey God. They couldn't keep themselves out of trouble. The, the book of Judges starts with Israel disobeying God by not taking the land, and then it spirals down from there. And because everybody in that time did what was right in his own eyes, that's a refrain, there's this cycle where God's people disobey, so God punishes them, and then God's people cry out to mercy, so God forgives. He sends a deliverer, a judge, to rescue them and give them prosperity. And in their prosperity, they forget God, they disobey, they get judged. They repent. God sends a deliverer. They, they bring peace. They disobey again. And this, this spiral just keeps going down and down deeper into the darkness. As you read through Judges, each judge not only gets more corrupt, but their situation gets worse and worse. Um, then in the epilogue to Judges, verse 17, or chapter 17 onward, just the, the situation in the land is worse than anything we read in the previous chapters. So it's no surprise at that time, then, that we're in this period of God's judgment on the land, right? There's a famine in time of judgment. Uh, that's what verse 1 tells us. It's part of the pattern. God judges disobedience. We shouldn't be surprised there. We should be surprised, though, that this man, Elimelech, packs up his wife and his sons and went to find food in Moab. It's not a move you can justify, right? 
the promised land, Bethlehem, Judah, that, that area, that's where God promises to bless his people. He doesn't promise blessing outside the land. It was confined to the area that God gave them. If you're in the land where God's special presence dwells, you have the, the blessings of God with you. So if there's a famine, you repent. You stick with God's people in God's place, with God's presence. You trust him to bring crops. At the same time, I get it, right? If there's no bread in Bethlehem, literally the house of bread, and you have a wife and you have two boys to feed, you're going to go find some place with food. It's a sensible thing to do. But you don't go to Moab. That's a shameful, that's a dangerous move. Moab, as you might remember, uh, was founded upon Lot's drunken incest with his two daughters, and it, it really just went downhill from there. Uh, maybe you remember Numbers 22, you have Balaam, who was hired to curse Israel. If you don't remember Balaam, you probably remember his talking donkey. Um, a couple chapters later, you have Moabite women's, women seducing the Israelite men into sacrificing to their gods. Um, it's not explicit in Numbers 25, but we know from other places in Scripture that those were likely child sacrifices to their gods. Or we just talked about, you know, hefty king Eglon, who Judges 3 says tormented Israel for 18 years until he was killed. Maybe, maybe he was on the throne during Ruth's story. We don't know when in the time of Judges. But Moab is consistently put up as the enemies of God's people. You do not want to go to Moab. You do not want to marry a Moabite woman. You don't want to get tangled up in that family tree. Uh, goodness, if, if you marry a Moabite woman, then your family is removed from the assembly. Not just the man who married her, but for 10 generations down the line, you can't come into the assembly of God's people. 10 generations. That's how bad Moab is. But our text says Elimelech took his wife, he took his sons, Malon and Kilian, to live in Moab. And there Elimelech died, and after his sons both married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, after a decade of living there, Malon and Kilian died too. So when they left the promised land to find life, they only found death. You know, in verse 2, you're just, you're just filled with names. But now these names are all gone. They're you're just relegated to tombstones in God-forsaken Moab. Naomi lost her husband. She lost her sons. And she's lost herself, too. I mean, look at, look at the end of verse 5. The, uh, this is the first time that the text says, So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She's not Naomi anymore. She's nameless as well. She's just the woman. Ruth wants us to sense the emptiness, to feel the weight of it. Because then in verse 6, one day, Naomi and her daughter-in-laws are out picking grain. They're, they're trying to survive. When they hear rumors in these Moabite fields about what's happening in Israel, apparently the cycle of God's judgment during the time of judges continued, right? In the famine, people repented. So what did God do? In his kindness, he came and he gave them food. He sent a deliverer. You see, do you see God's hidden hand at work? Grain doesn't have control over itself, whether it grows or whether it dies. No, food doesn't grow just because you plant the seeds. The text says, look at verse 6, right? The Lord had visited his people, and he had given them food. It's a gift of God's kindness that they could eat. 
But it's interesting, right? Naomi says he had given them food, not us food. She doesn't consider herself part of God's people anymore. She'd forsaken them a decade ago. She'd cut herself off from God's blessing and his place in his people. She had become the prodigal out alone in the far country. But in God's loving kindness, he brings the prodigals out of the far country back to his place of blessing. The prodigal can always come home. And that's exactly what she does. Look at verse 7 there. So she set out from the place (coughs) where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. I think in some degree, whether it's large or small, we all see our story in Naomi's story. Like I mentioned, Elimelech's not, not really a villain here. He just does a, it's a sensible thing. Neither's Naomi to whatever degree she agreed and didn't just follow, right? They just did the sensible thing. We need to feed our kids. Let's go where there's food. I mean, how many of us also default to walking by sight and not by faith. They left the promised land where God's blessing was because they needed food. Instead of repenting, instead of trusting, instead of waiting on him, they pursued their own plans, and they sojourned to Moab. I mean, we've all done this. Things get tough, and so our first response is to move from the place where God blesses us to what we think is sensible and and right. I mean, when when our days get busy, when they're full to the brim, what's the first thing you give up so that you have more time to get everything done? I'd wager for most of us, it's a devotional time with the Lord through his word and through prayer. You know, just for a day or two till I can get my feet back under me. Then Then I'll restart the habit. Or when we're suffering... If, you're like, if, you're, if your sinfulness plays out like mine, you don't lean into the community that God has given to help you in difficulties. Rather, you pull back from them. You try and do it alone until you can get your act together because we, we don't want to have to lean on the people that God has given to bless us in difficulty. We want to make sure they think that we're put together. Or when, you know, the business needs your time and attention— and you realize you could get so much more done on a Sunday morning. Church will be there in a month. Your job may not be. So you put in the extra hours forsaking the means of grace where God's promised to bless you in a local church. It's, it's logical. It's, it's sensical. It, it's, it's temporary, right? I've seen it a thousand times, not just because I see it, you know, as a, as a pastor, but because I constantly see it in myself. <coughs> if you walk into our house on a good day, when things are going well, um, when routines are happening and kids are happy after dinner, we'll read the story Bible, we'll pray, we'll sing, and probably dance and just have a great time of family worship. But walk in on a chaotic day, right, where the family schedule's just been blown out of the water by noon and, and we're just doing everything we can to survive until bedtime, then... I think, well, we got to get them to bed. There's no time for God to bless us in family worship. It's the first thing I'll throw off the ship so that we can weather the storm. I I get it. We're prone to wander from the place where God blesses us. It's amazing. Like verse 1 says, we intend to sojourn there. It's temporary. We're not going to do this long term. It's a short-term fix. But then by verse 4, the temporary has turned into over a decade 
We understand, Naomi, why she doesn't consider herself part of God's people, why it's them instead of us. It's embarrassing to come back. We don't know how to do it. We don't know how we'll be received. Maybe, maybe life in Moab isn't really that bad. But the message of Ruth 1 is that in his kindness, God brings his prodigals out of a far country into his place of blessing. God welcomes you back home. So wherever it is that you wander from God's blessing, searching for life outside of his promises, you can come home. God welcomes you home. But his, his welcome isn't just for prodigals who've left. It's also for outsiders who's, who've never been. God doesn't just bring prodigals home. He brings outsiders in. Look at this next section, starting in verse 8 down through 18. Just like Naomi did the sensible thing in leaving her home, she now begs Naomi and, or Ruth and Orpah to do the sensible thing and stay in their, in their home, right? In verses 8 and 9, she says, Go back to your parents. Go back to worshiping Molech. Find a nice Moabite boy and find the rest of your life there. May God even bless your life in Moab because of how kind you've been to me and how kind you've been to the dead. But they refuse. No, we'll go with you to your people. And Naomi's not taking it. Naomi's been around. She understands how the world works. She understands how Bethlehem works, right? There's no place for Moabites there. And there's no place for widows either. For a young woman in that world, basically your only options are to have your husband take care of you or your father to take care of you. And if you're an older widow like Naomi, then your son takes care of you. But the husbands and the sons were all dead, right? There, it, it was a man's world back then. There's no pensions, no social systems. There's no one to take care of widows when they can no longer feed themselves. Following her to Bethlehem would have been a life of loneliness and a slow sentence to their death. In fact, the, the, the Mosaic Law actually had this statue in it, which seems really odd to us. Uh, we'll talk about it more in weeks to come. It becomes pretty relevant in the story. But if a man dies without a son, then it was his brother's job to take his widow and make sure that she had a son. That way, the family line would be carried on, but also somebody would be able to take care of mom in her old age, um, which seems really strange, but it was God's way of caring for widows so they don't just die starving and destitute. I mean, this is the big argument behind Naomi, uh, her, her phrase here in verse 11, right? Come on, there's, there's no one to marry you. If you come with me, you, you, you're not going to have anyone. Look at verse 11. Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Right? There's, there's no one that's going to marry them and provide a son to take care of them. But she says, hey, even for the sake of argument, let's say I get married and get pregnant tonight, even though there's no man in the picture. Are you then going to wait 18 years or whatever it is uh, to grow up and, and marry them? Of course not. Go back to your homes. God's not blessing me. He's not going to bless you. So go back to the foreign land. Maybe he'll bless you there as, you know, they're sacrificing the false gods and, and opposing God's people. Um, she says, For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah was convinced to do the sensible thing. She went home, but not Ruth. Verse 14, Ruth clung to her. Ruth counted the cost, singleness, childlessness, and serving a God whose hand has gone out heavy against Naomi. And she clung to her. Look at this oath that she takes in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from two. This is an extreme oath she makes. It has several implications. Um, consider just a, <coughs> just a few of them. She's going to leave her family and her friends and her land forever. She's never coming back to them. She's committed to a life of widowhood and childlessness, right? Because if she gets married, you know, if she finds some suitor in Bethlehem, if she marries into a new family, she leaves Naomi's family. So she's committed to stay single with no children. And she actually promises more than she does in, a, in her marriage vow a decade earlier, right? It, there's no till death do us part here. It says, where you die, I will die, and I'll be buried with you. But most astoundingly, she says, your God is now my God. The God that Naomi just said has dealt bitterly with her, whose hand has gone out against her. Ruth wants that God to be hers. In that moment, in the fields outside of Moab, Ruth converts. I don't know if it's intentional or if it's accidental, but she echoes God's covenant words of Leviticus 26. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And she says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. She doesn't just commit to Naomi. She forsakes Molech and all of Moab and turns to Jehovah and his people. Ruth gets saved here in chapter 1. But she's a Moabite. Can God save her? That's a big question for those in Bethlehem. We say, of course he can. And in God's kindness, God brings outsiders in. But this is just the first massive shocker in the book of Ruth. It's, a, it's, a, it's not, I was going to say surprise. It's more than that. It's a scandal for God to save a Moabite. I mean, Naomi didn't think she could convert, right? Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. But God says, absolutely, come in come home. God's often at work in places and people that we think he has no business working. It always scandalizes religious people when God's at work and, you know, people that aren't them. In Acts 15, we see this, right? The apostles come and report, hey, God's out there saving Gentiles. Isn't this glorious? So the church comes together for a business meeting to decide, hey, is God allowed to save Gentiles? And they, 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 they allow God to do it, but not after, I think the phrase in Acts is, there was not little debate. And that's how you know the early church was Baptist. Um, it's, it's shocking in places like Matthew 8, where Jesus says to a Gentile, to a soldier, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, the insiders, will be thrown to the outer darkness. How could it be that Jesus is bringing outsiders in while those born on the inside are being thrown out? Doesn't Jesus know that saying things like that in Israel could get you killed? Or since most of us aren't Jewish, um, we even think about places like Romans 11, where the Gentiles now are boasting because God has, it seems, given his attention away from the Israelites and onto the Gentiles. So now they boast, look at us. We're getting all of your promises. And Paul has to rebuke them, saying, don't think that you're any more deserving than they are. It's the same arrogance, just from a different angle. I mean, how do you respond when God's working in a place you think he shouldn't be? Other peoples, other places, other churches, you know, when the mega churches that you look down on for being squishy are flourishing instead of you. When those, you know, your neighbor who's far less devout from you than you is getting blessed, and you're not. Does your kindness reach as far as God's does? His kindness reaches where ours never could. In God's kindness, the prodigal comes home, and the outsider is brought in. Naomi and Ruth returned. When I say return, it's, it's a double meaning in Hebrew. Um, we, don't, we don't see it in the English. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a normal word for return. It's over a thousand times in the Old Testament. Um, shuv. It, it, it talks about their physical return, but also return is what the prophets cried all throughout their ministries, and it's translated there, repent, right? To go back, to turn from your sin, to turn from your own sensible wisdom, and turn back to God. And so in some random field outside Moab, Naomi and Ruth give us this vivid illustration of what repentance actually looks like, because their physical selves are reflecting their spiritual selves. When their spiritual reality turns from Moab back to Bethlehem, their bodies do the same. They leave one place, and they return to where God is, and his people are, and his hope of blessing is. He promised to provide for them in the land, and so that's where, you're, where they're going. And so whether you're a prodigal or an outsider, we're all invited to repent and to return to God's place of blessing this morning. That's the, that's the beauty of pairing Naomi and Ruth together, right? Two women, two completely different lives, two different backgrounds, but the Lord receives them both. Prodigals and enemies both brought home. But it's not as if, you know, verse 18 ends our chapter and they live happily ever after. They, it gets worse before it gets better. That's usually what happens when we repent. Things do get better, but not after they get not before they get worse. Look at verse 19 here. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Which I get. I was, I was up at my parents' this week. Um, you know, I grew up in a small town, one high school, one stoplight. Not even a real stoplight. It's, it's a blinker light. It's a glorified stop sign graduated with 80-some kids from high school, and I haven't lived there for 
15 years or so. But of course, after an hour of being in, in town, right, I see people that I, that I used to know. Is that Danny? Is he, is he back? You know, I was just a normal kid who moved away after high school like everybody else in town. And I was recognized. But that's not the way it works in Bethlehem. You don't leave Bethlehem. You don't move away. You sit on the family land and you farm it. You stay put. And so after these 10 years, people knew Naomi. But the decade of grief and hardship had taken their toll. She looks like Naomi. Is this Naomi? And it also shows, you know, their attitude towards Moabites, right? Look how it emphasizes this, that Naomi and Ruth returned, right? Verse 19, it says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? They completely ignore Ruth here. And so this Naomi in her response, right? She says nothing about Ruth because Ruth is nothing in the eyes of the Bethlehemites. Look at, look at her response. She says, don't call me that. Naomi means pleasant. It means lovely, which is just a cruel irony on the life of Naomi, isn't it? With her husband and sons buried in Moab, her life has been anything but lovely and pleasant. She says, the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. I'm completely empty. There's no one with me who cares about me. Ignoring Ruth. She says, call me Mara instead of Naomi. It means bitter, right? Because the Lord... The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? There's, there's a complexity to God's kindness, isn't there? it doesn't always play out the way we would expect or desire. Or even maybe it doesn't play out the way we would define kindness. I know my temptation when I read this, maybe it's yours too, is to take the difficulty, to take the mystery out of God's kind providence, right? I want to turn God's sovereignty into formulas, right? If you do A, B will happen. I love these simple cause and effect relationships, right? They left Bethlehem for Moab, therefore Elimelech died. The sons married Moabite women, therefore they died. But the text doesn't indicate that anywhere, right? It just says this happened. Is it cause and effect? Well, Ruth doesn't tell. Ruth doesn't know. Because that's not necessarily how God works, right? Sometimes God works that way where there's a direct cause and direct offense. And other direct effect. And other times it's like John 9 when the disciples are walking down the road and they see a man who's, who was born blind and say, hey Jesus, who was it that sinned so that he was blind? Was it his parents that sinned to have a blind son or did he sin so that he himself is blind? And Jesus says, that question doesn't even make sense. No one sinned so that he was born blind. He's just blind. He's blind so that the glory of God can be displayed in giving him sight. It's, it's never right to equate, you know, somebody's suffering directly to their sinning. I mean, we have an entire Old Testament book to teach us this lesson. That's, that's a point of the book of Job, is not to jump to conclusions about suffering. Because if you're sitting here thinking, I get it, Naomi. 
I get what it's like to have God's hand go out against you, for him to, to have his bitter providence play out, to have a hand heavy upon me, to have calamity. And you think, and the reason God is upset with me is because I blank, whatever that is, then maybe that's true. Or maybe it's not. We have no way of knowing why suffering happens. But we often feel guilty for it anyways. But let's say for the sake of argument, right, that it is Naomi and Ruth's fault that their husbands all died. Isn't there at least some measure of encouragement there? That if God can bring sinners of that level home, then surely he can bring us back as well. Their sin doesn't extinguish his kindness and neither does yours. All we know from this text is that God brought her back empty. And perhaps he's emptied you, but we know that he brought her back. And, and that's a great mercy, although one author calls it a severe mercy. So what do we do with this speech here in 19 through 22? Well, I, I didn't read 22. Let, let me get this last phrase here in the conclusion. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I think when we, when we talk about God's bitter providence, uh, well, first we want we to commend Naomi's theology, right? She sees God himself as the source and the foundation of all things. So many people try and get God off the hook when things go wrong, but not Naomi. She's, she embraces the sovereignty of God. That's what we should do. We should embrace and celebrate the sovereignty of God over everything, the significant things like births and deaths, and the, the, you know, minor things like birds dying and hair growing is what we read in the Sermon on the Mount. Even when we lack understanding of what God's doing, we can completely trust the one in control. And we acknowledge that God doesn't have to explain himself in times of bitter providence. Sometimes in his kindness, he does. And often in his kindness, he doesn't. We shouldn't expect that from him. We, we don't know his, his purposes for his pleasant or for his better providence. But there are some things we do know. I mean, just on an earthly level, I know that vanilla extract is bitter and disgusting, but I put it in my cookies not to make them bitter and disgusting, but so they taste good. Same thing with vinegar in my barbecue. I know that scientists can take a virus that can kill millions, but handle it with such care to turn it into a vaccine that heals instead. Or they can take radioactive materials that could dissolve me on the spot and use them to power an entire city with hospitals. And if humans can do that with things that are dangerous, and bitter. Imagine what God can do through them, even through his bitter providence. And we know that God is always doing 50 billion things that we have no idea about, right? Naomi has no idea what's to come in her story. Neither do we. All she sees is that she went away full and God brought her back empty. 
But does she realize that God brought her back? Isn't that the most important thing? For God to bring you back, rather prodigal or outsider? And does she realize when he brought her back? It was the beginning of the barley harvest, verse 22 says. It's not that the food is starting to grow. The food is ready to harvest. It's ready to eat. But bitterness has a way of blinding us to our blessings. We see it time and time again in our lives. We see it time and time again in Ruth. Every chapter is going to give us some blessing that just, that, that alters the direction of the story of Ruth that, that she was blind to in chapter one. You know, I had to ignore the rest of the book to, <laughs> to teach chapter one. Otherwise, it's going to be like, Naomi was wrong here and here and here and there. Doesn't she realize she has a relative to take care of her back home? Or a second relative that's even closer to take care of her? Don't, don't, doesn't she realize, chapter 4 says, that she has land with crops on it. Why did she forget that? Do you think she'd complain if she knew that one day, because the Lord brought her back empty, she would sit with her grandson on her lap, a grandson who had become the grandfather of King David? Would she be this bitter and ignoring Ruth, seeing her as a liability, if she could look thousands of years into the future and read, you know, Matthew chapter 1 and see Ruth's name printed in black and white in the family tree of Jesus Christ? Would she throw away her suffering if she could see Jesus Christ experiencing that same bitter providence, the severe mercy as he hung on the cross, for the salvation of mankind so that prodigals could come home and so Moabites and Americans could come into God's family. God's bitter providence is never for nothing. There's 50 billion things that Naomi doesn't see in, his bit in her bitterness and that we don't see in ours. Some of them because they're simply in our future and we have no idea what God's up to. But they're in God's mind and they're in God's plan. And so the call of Ruth is to trust the one who is in sovereign, kind control over all things. You know, the, this book, it's, it's all about the providence of God, but it's subtle in the, way how, in the way that it talks about God's good providence, right? His workings are never explained. They're never explicated. It, it's never the forefront of the story but it's always there discreetly in the background, directing each and every step. Because isn't that how we experience God's providence? We don't see it. We don't get to read his plans. No, it's just always in the background, guiding us with a kind and hidden hand. So we trust Naomi, and we, we confess God's sovereign providence in all things, in the bitter things and in the sweet things. And we trust that he knows the things that we don't. And in his bitter and his pleasant providence, we, we know that he will receive us home, either prodigal or outsider, and he will lavish us there with blessings. Because in his loving kindness, God, God brings people out of the far country, even you and me, into his place of blessing. So as, as we turn now to, to celebrate the Lord's table, Let's consider the reality that Ruth's story points us to. Consider why God can call prodigals home. Why Moabites, why sinners can be forgiven. It's because of Jesus Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross that any of us have a right to come to God.
And it's because of Jesus that we know when we come to God, we'll be received by him. We won't be rejected. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of another prodigal who left his family's house and land and, and forsook the father, taking his inheritance. And that prodigal son, he comes to his senses, and he comes home afraid of what his father will say. But as he's off on the horizon practicing his speech— Right? His father comes running out to him, celebrating, filled with joy, that my son who was dead is now alive. Kill a calf, throw a party. My son is back from the dead. We don't fear coming home to God because we know what kind of father he is. Jesus' blood assures our welcome. And when we doubt God's goodness in the midst of our experiences, our experiences of his bitter, difficult providence, we look again to that same blood of Jesus Christ, and it reminds us of the severe mercy of the cross. That if God loved his own son and yet sent him to suffer and die, then that means our current circumstances speak nothing of God's love for us. God's love and his kindness is not defined by circumstances. It's defined by the cross of Jesus Christ. So as the gentlemen come and they pass out the elements, just take a moment to consider how God is calling you home. Let the bread and the cup remind you of the cost paid to bring you back. And let your thoughts of the gospel, of Christ's sacrifice, motivate you to come back to God wherever you've wandered.